and welcome to WMMT's Mountain Talk. I'm your host, Parker Hobson. Coming up, we have stories from all across the board. We'll hear about the blues from Southwest Virginia musician Earl Gilmore. And we'll hear about a local project that helps people live better with type 2 diabetes. But first, it is Black History Month, and so we start our show today with a profile of a one-of-a-kind Black Appalachian, Evelyn Williams. Stay tuned. And I told him, somebody will go to jail or somebody will go to hell if you come across my property. Well, we're going to leave it in better shape than we found it. Well, I'm not going to tell you what I said either. <laughs> in the mid-1990s, Evelyn Williams was in the thick of a battle on her own land in Knott County, Kentucky. An oil company was trying to drill on her property against her will and she was leading the fight to try to stop them. Your property will be the same after we leave as it is. Is this right in. here the same that it was before you came up here? It's just like this. Yeah. Well, since it was just like that, I'll just sit here and see that it stays like that. I don't know of any issue, the women's issue, all those women were killed in New York City in that factory until they took action. Miners, got nothing until they took action, until they were willing to die for it. So I, I, I don't know. All I know to do is, uh, is to be an activist. Born in 1915 in Kingston, Tennessee, Evelyn Williams moved to the mountains of Perry County, Kentucky when she was a little girl, and she would spend most of her life in Appalachia. Evelyn led a remarkably diverse life. She was an activist in the Kentucky mountains, a community organizer in New York City, a coal miner's wife, a housekeeper, a new college graduate in her mid-50s, and a mother of nine children. The clips you'll hear in this story all come from the 1995 Apple Shop film Evelyn Williams, produced by Ann Lewis. The film profiled Evelyn's life and work and her experiences growing up black in the mountains. I'm the second generation out of slavery. People were freed from slavery. And they never moved from there. My, my father's father was about three miles from where he was held a slave. I found it so strange. They thought that slaves were here because they ran and hid in the mountains. They didn't know they were slaves here in the mountains. My grandfather was in the Union Army. They used to come up and they'd say, oh, Uncle Ed, we fought for your freedom. He said, no, you didn't fight for my freedom. I fought for my freedom. And he would tell, that's when he would tell, when he fought, you know, Chattanooga Lookout Mountain and Appomattox. And he would always say, don't let anybody do for you what you can do for yourself. And he was very adamant about his land. Because you see, by being a slave, they did not own anything. But he felt a part of everything when he became a landowner. My father worked at an ore mine. And this mine 
closed. And we went to Kerry County, Kentucky. Evelyn experienced real and violent racism firsthand in Perry County, including a visit from the KKK and even the lynching of one of her friends when she was just 18 years old. I saw the Klan march when I was a child in 25. They tell me that is Beulah Mountain. We lived at Harvey. And the Klan would march through the black camp. And I remember one night, they had set that cross of fire. And it came one of those pouring rains. And it drenched the cross. And they left that cross up there. And, you know, when you come out, we lived over on the other side of the mountain. And when you come out, you'd see that cross, that charred cross up there. Well, well don't worry about me. Well, don't worry about me. Well, don't you worry about me. Jesus gonna make up my dying we were in Vico to a ball game, and someone came in and said they had lynched Rex. I was 18 at that time. We heard the noise. I'll never forget that rebel cry and that squealing and the jubilee of that time. The men went back and they worked with them. It was just one of those things. They talked about it, but there was nothing. They were powerless. And if you want to know what it means, I guess at that time, it really dawned on me what powerlessness meant and injustice meant at that time. Some blacks would talk about it and some wouldn't because it was such a wasted life. When I left here, there's nothing had been done. And when I came back here in the 70s, there were several that pointed out different ones that uh, had been involved in that lynching. And nothing was done. In 1932, Evelyn married Gus Williams, a coal miner from Letcher County, Kentucky. They started a family and moved to Bluefield, West Virginia, where Gus worked in the mines. He also served as an organizer for the UMWA during an era when this was a dangerous thing to do. Black miners were involved. They were very, very involved. Those men that were union were willing to give up their lives to organize those men. They knew Gus used to say, now, Evelyn, if I go out on uh, duty tonight or whenever they call, now, I might not come back. He was very, very union. Up at the company store, they had a canteen. White set over here and blacks over here. You know, you had to go in and you had to be served. But they would put a speck of paint 
on the bottom of the glass, you know, so they wouldn't mix them. <laughs> and some of the blacks protested. And they wanted to know why that we didn't get the same service that they did. Oh, there's nothing about it, there's nothing about it, they would say. But uh, then they stopped the paint, the black paint on the glasses. But there was always something there to let you know, you know, you were separate and unequal. When new coal mining machines cost Gus his job, the family left the mountains for New York City for Gus to find work. While there, Evelyn went back to school, earning a college degree in her mid-50s from the New School for Social Research. She also worked as a community organizer in Brooklyn and fought for issues like daycare and organized against the discriminatory housing practice known as redlining. In the early 1970s, Evelyn and Gus, now retired, moved back to the Kentucky mountains, to the community of Red Fox in Knott County. And after a lifetime of dealing with discrimination and working for social justice, when a gas company decided in the 1990s to drill on Evelyn's land without her permission, she wasn't about to just let it happen. The last four times they came up there, I just sat right down in the middle of the road. And they threatened to call the police. And they threatened to call Kenneth. And I said, no, you, uh-uh, you ain't gonna put me on my mama. <laughs> so, but here was the thing about it. I said, what are you gonna have me arrested for? Sitting on my property, reading a book on my property. You know, that would look kind of stupid. And the papers and the news would have eaten that up. Old woman carried off and they would have had to carry me off. Sitting on the property, <laughs> reading a book, fighting for justice. Evelyn Williams passed away in 2002. Again, you've been hearing clips from the 1995 Apple Shop film, Evelyn Williams, directed by Ann Lewis. To stream the whole film, or any other Apple Shop film, head to appleshop.org. And that's Apple spelled A-P-P-A-L. So you might have heard that diabetes is one of those health conditions that could make symptoms of COVID-19 worse if you caught it. And Eastern Kentucky has higher rates of type 2 diabetes than the state and national averages, which has put even more local people at risk throughout the pandemic. But it is possible to make changes to your habits to better manage type 2 or even prevent it in the first place. And so today, as part of our ongoing series, Prevent Diabetes EKY, we hear from Tiffany Scott of Letcher County about the Diabetes Research and Outreach Project, Appalachians in Control. We spoke back before the pandemic, but the message still stands. And you know, here in our area, nobody's along with diabetes. Any street corner you, you turn down, uh, every grocery store aisle, every church pew, you know, you've probably got somebody sitting right there with you who is battling at work as family member is. But a lot of times people can delay or even prevent type 2 diabetes simply with their diet and exercise plan. 
my name is Tiffany Scott. I'm from Letcher County. Lived in Letcher County my entire life. I'm the project manager for the University of Kentucky for their community research-based project called Faith Moves Mountains. I came on board in 2017 uh, with the launch of their newest project, which is a diabetic research project that we have named Appalachians in Control, playing off A1C, um, which is the test that your doctor does to kind of measure what your blood sugars ran over the last three months. And what we do is we are looking for people who have a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes or people who have a high A1C level, and the cutoff that we're using is 6.5. So what we do is we go into a church or a community center or, you know, whatever group we're working with, and we'll do a free A1C test. We do height, we do weight, we do blood pressure, waist circumference, and body mass index. And then once we see if they're eligible, they can choose whether or not they would like to participate with us. There's two arms of our study. The first step of the study would be for them, that person who was eligible, to complete a one-hour interview with us. And that interview is a series of diabetic knowledge-based questions. And then um, the next step of our project would be to offer them an intervention. It's called DEEP, Diabetic Education Empowerment Program. And it is a self-management program. It involves six weeks of diabetic self-management classes. We meet one day a week for six weeks. And they're, they're very interactive classes. It's not like being lectured at. They're very hands-on. There's activities. There's engagement. And then um, three months from that original eligibility screening, we bring those folks back in and we re-screen them again. So we offer another free A1C test. And we check their blood pressure and their weight and their height and their waist circumference and their body mass index. And we also repeat that interview. And the interview is a little bit different, um, but it really is designed to check their diabetic knowledge again to see if they learned anything. And then three months later, at the six-month mark, we do it again. We do that again at the nine-month mark. So what we're doing is we're measuring if they learned anything, if they retained it, and then if they put it into action, and if those actions reflect on that biometric data. You know, our curriculum, one of the things we have them do, it's called a weekly action plan. And we it's a thing that they can hang on their fridge that says, this week I'm going to commit to ABC. And we don't ask them to say, I'm going to run a marathon this week. We ask them to be realistic. You know, an example would be to park farther away at Walmart, park farther away at Food City. Don't look for that closest parking spot. Look for the farthest away parking spot. You know, making an extra lap to the grocery store before you leave. You know, just any little thing that these folks can do is, is going to make a difference. Another thing is, um, it's just when you talk about people's diet, you know, when you think about sugar, as we like to call it here in eastern Kentucky, um, people think, all right, well, all right, I have sugar, I have diabetes, so as long as I don't eat sweet things, I'm okay. And that's, that's true. You know, people with diabetes, they definitely need to watch their sugar intake. But at the same time, they have to watch the carbs. Because when you think about a Big Mac, nothing is sweet about a Big Mac, right? I mean, it's not, it's not a piece of cake. Um, but it's loaded in carbs. And your body does have to turn that to energy. And so when it breaks it down, um, it makes your blood sugar go up. French fries, nothing sweet about French fries, but they're loaded in carbs. A baked potato, even from Wendy's, that potato is not sweet, 
But for a diabetic, you know, it's like cutting that potato open and filling it full of sugar. So, you know, teaching that misconception. I mean, we're seeing people in our classes that have been diagnosed with diabetes for years, and it's still like sitting in a classroom full of, of kids sometimes and watching light bulbs go off on things that they're being told. Um, you know, we had a, a participant recently who uh, he has lost about 25 pounds, you know, just because he said, I, you know, I've learned things through this curriculum I didn't know. We see a lot of diabetes rates in our area. Diabetes runs rampant in Appalachian, Eastern Kentucky. Um, you know, so we it's something we see left and right. There's family history. And some things in life we have no control over. Some people are going to get type 2 diabetes because of genetic reasons. And there's nothing we can do about that. But a lot of times people can delay or even prevent type 2 diabetes simply with their diet and exercise plan. But, you know, that, that is a misconception that, you know, a lot of people think if I'm going to get it, I'm going to get it. But there's so many things you can do to try to reduce your risk <laughs> just by making those healthy food choices and by moving and, you know, all those different things. I went around the room at one of our last classes and I said, who wants to share a change you've made? Um, one change a lady made in particular, she said, I quit drinking regular pop. And that's huge for anybody. But when you're talking to someone drinking regular soda who is diabetic to make that change, that's that's huge. Um, we had a couple tell us, uh, it was a husband and wife team, and they said, we've quit buying white bread. That's huge. And those are small steps. You know, I think the biggest thing for us is trying to teach moderation. It's not like they're never going to eat a piece of birthday cake again. Or it's not like they're going to not order McDonald's french fries or a baked potato again. They're going to do that. But we have to teach them how to compensate, that they can't do it every day. Uh, it's got to be a lifestyle change in order to prolong their life and to keep them free of the complications that could arise if they don't. My father is diabetic. Um, my grandmother was diabetic. You know, diabetes runs in my family rampantly. Um, and so that's a concern of mine, obviously, as well. Um, but I will tell you a story about my step-grandfather. He had diabetes, and he went to the grocery store back when Piggly Wiggly was open in Cumberland and went to get a can of corn and dropped the can of corn on his foot. And he hid it from my grandmother. He didn't tell her about it. And he kept it quiet until, I guess, he couldn't keep it quiet any longer. And he had to go to the hospital, and his foot had already turned black around the toes and had set up infection. Um, I'm sure the odor, you know, was probably unbearable, and that's probably how my grandmother found out about it. And so they ended up amputating toes, and he went home, and it didn't heal. When you're diabetic, you don't heal like a normal person does. And a very long story short, he ended up back at the hospital with gangrene. They took his um, entire foot off, never left the hospital, set up, you know, the gangrene continued to spread, took it off at the knee, and he died at the hospital, all from diabetic complications over a simple can of corn falling on his foot. So, you know, the folks don't realize the severity of, of diabetes a lot of times uh, we play it off as oh well just they can't eat sweets they can't eat this they can't eat that but when you're looking at the complications of the kidney failure the glaucoma you know you're at high risk for heart attack or high risk for stroke or losing your life over a can of corn and you don't want to scare people to death but you want to be realistic and let them know hey you know if something doesn't change this is this is down the path you're heading down this is what could very well happen.
you know, change can be overwhelming, no matter what it is. And you think about our food here in the area, it's so easy to pop open something out of the freezer section. You know, for someone who's, who's used to doing that for years, to going to the fresh veggie section and say, all right, what do I do with this? What do I do with this squash that I've, I've not ever cooked with fresh before? You know, I think we're heading in the right direction. You know, the pharmacy program Mountain Comp does with the fresh fruits and veggies, the walking trail program, and all the different things that they're doing. Sometimes starting is the hardest thing and the biggest challenge to overcome is just making that very first step. And support, you know, and that's a, the big part of our class as we talk at the end. Um, our last week we talk about mobilizing family and friends that you can get involved with you, whether it's to go walking with you or sharing recipes or taking somebody to the doctor with you just to, you know, better understand what's being said. And, you know, here in our area, nobody's alone with diabetes. <laughs> any street corner you, you turn down uh, every grocery store aisle every church pew you know you've probably got somebody sitting right there with you who is battling at work close family member is i'm i'm from letcher county this is my home i've lived here my entire life um you know so i'm not somebody coming in and collecting data and leaving you know this is this is home to me this, these people are my friends and neighbors and my family members just like they are so many others and so uh, this is a project for me that goes far beyond a paycheck you know it's just a, anything we can do to improve the lives of folks in our communities i don't think it gets any better than that Again, you've been hearing from Tiffany Scott of Letcher County about Appalachians in Control, a project of the local nonprofit organization Faith Moves Mountains. For more stories of preventing and managing type 2 diabetes in eastern Kentucky, check out our project website, preventdiabeteseky.org. And finally, we close this half of our show with the inimitable local black musician, Earl Gilmore. Earl, who was born in 1924 and passed away in 2000, was a lifelong resident of Clinchco, an integrated coal camp in Dickinson County, Virginia. Earl was best known as a blues and gospel singer and piano player, performing at folk festivals across the region and even at the National Folk Festival at the Smithsonian Institute in Washington. Up next, from the Apple Shop Archive, we'll hear a clip of Earl talking about music and singing the song Around God's Throne from the early 1980s. I love you so much, I know that it was no joy. If I can't love you right, baby, ain't no use to me loving you at Not so often, <laughs> but I, every now and then, especially when I'm out doing a concert, somebody requests it, then I sing it. But I have to be prompted to do it. How do you feel that blues uh, act, uh, meshes in with the church? What do you think about that? I don't think they have any parts. I mean, either way, the church music, the church music, and the blues is the blues. Although you sing the blues, it makes you feel well the same as you sing church music, but not uplifted like the singing songs of the church because you can feel depressed or you can have nothing but then when you you throw your faith upon the Lord and, and sing with all your heart into this 
telling the Lord all about it. And right there you feel relieved because you feel exactly what the Lord did for you. He's taken all your burdens away. But where it's blues, you're depressed and you just sing about your depression. That's all it is. You sing about the blues. You're blue. And then you sing about the blues. And it's just like being in a fight. You fight. And each other's battling it out you know, because you're angry. When it's all over, you still got your scars and things to show for it, you know. You just got a little bit off your chest because you fought it out. Oh, okay. So we sing, uh, going back to an old family place, like homecoming. I went to the place where I, I used to live. The grass had grown up around the door. Someone from across the street, they said, oh, whom do you seek? For they don't, they don't come here anymore they are somewhere around the throne of God they are somewhere around the throne Oh, 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 oh,
Again, that was Southwest Virginia musician Earl Gilmore from the Apple Shop Archive. Earl released a full-length album on our very own June Apple Records back in 1977. And to hear more of Earl's music, including songs from this record, check out juneapplerecordings.bandcamp.com. And again, that's Apple spelled A-P-P-A-L. And that's the first half of our show. Thanks for listening. Other music today has been by Andrew F. Borman, also from June Apple Records, and by Michael Chapman from the Free Music Archive. For WMMT, I'm Parker Hobson.